And we have a guest with us today. Cindy, can you just say just a little bit about like what equipment you're using? And- yes, Cindy Suarez is here and I am in my office, um, which has a somewhat high ceiling and I am using the mic off my Mac desktop with a headphone set. Brilliant. Great. Okay. So we'll just do a countdown from Tim silently and then Tim, I'll start. And you can just imagine some really like fun, happy music playing. It's like a bam, 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 bam. It kind of does like this little like horn, funk horn thing happens. And then like Tuesday says something cool and we're in. (laughs) (laughs) Hello there. You're listening to Find the Outside, the podcast. I'm Tuesday Ryan Hart. And I'm Tim Merry. And today on the podcast, our first podcast back in season three. Woo-hoo. So excited to be back. We are talking with Cindy Suarez. So let me tell you a little bit about Cindy and then we're going to dive right in. So Cindy is the senior editor at Nonprofit Quarterly. She's the author of the Power Manual, How to Master Complex Power Dynamics, in which she outlines a new theory and practice of power. She's worked as a strategy and innovation consultant with a focus on networks and platforms for social movements. She studied feminist theory and organizational development for social change. And we're having her on because she's super smart. And last year we had a podcast on power. And in the middle of it, Cindy, I was like, wait, we know an expert on power. Why are we talking? We should have her on. <laughs> That's so, right. And so this is part of what um, originated it. And then also, Cindy, our paths have just crossed for a number of years. And I'm, you know, I think we're building a friendship and that's wonderful too. But we're so Thank glad you. to have Happy you on, on today. Truly. And um, maybe just to kick off, is there anything else that you would like to say about yourself by way of introduction to our listeners and the people who are tuning in beyond what Tuesday kind of gave in the beginning? Is there any kind of setup that you feel important about how you turn up to conversations like this or the work? Yeah, I mean, I think in the last few years, I realized uh, a different form of leadership that I've been exploring and I've been calling it articulation leadership, seeing the power in putting things that we want into words, um, how that just opens up different worlds and possibilities. So I've seen it in the writing that I've done and I feel like I never thought of it before as a type of leadership, but it's, it's very powerful and I am exploring it and loving it. Wow. I think that just strikes such a chord with me uh, because we were just talking with our branders and our communication person at the outside about how challenging language is because we're wanting to create a new world, right? So in some ways you have to use new language, but then it becomes inaccessible. And so I'm really curious what you're beginning to articulate and what are even down to what words you're beginning to use to articulate what is it that we want in this world? Yeah, it's really interesting because I I talked to so many groups who people will call me uh, wanting to talk often because they've seen something I've written or read my book. And so, for example, I was talking yesterday to a group that's working. Uh, it was a really interesting group. They're, they were talking about how there are about 10 or so global networks that have developed in the last few years to really impact social change. And each of those networks had a working group. And so this group came together as a group of all the working groups. So they're calling it the master work group. And they're using the power manual to look at this work that they're doing in the world. A lot of it based, I believe, on environmental work. And so they're doing work off the coast of Maine. Apparently that gulf there is the warmest in the world from what I understand. 
So there's a lot happening there. And as soon as I started trying to work on this future vision for how to transform the space, immediately the issue of power came up and as they engaged indigenous communities. And so I spent some time yesterday talking to their leaders. And one of the things I really realized from that conversation because people kept talking about the words that we use and whether or not you can start such a project with mostly white folks because they're the ones who can make it. And I said, no, actually, there's really no way around it. And when we started talking about words in particular, we noticed that the words that they were using were signaling, right? So if you say you're inviting diversity to this project, that is going to keep out certain people who are not willing to be the diversity uh, invited into spaces. So we talked a lot about how you know, when, when they asked me about the words I used and what I noticed in the words I used, I said, I noticed I never used the same words. And I, they were saying, well, can you use the same words and just give them different meanings? And I said, well, I guess you could. But in my experience, I've noticed that I'm, I never use the same words. And I have had a history of that, I think. I, I remember when I was an organizer, uh, you know, a decade or so ago, with different projects around politics in the Northeast, I remember people asking me, they said, you never used the word struggle. And people would notice that I wouldn't use the same words everybody else in the room used. And I knew that that in some ways made people distrust me or at least wonder about me because I wasn't signaling. And I purposely did not signal. I purposely did not use those words. I don't see myself as being in a struggle. I see myself as thriving and filling up fulfilling my purpose. So those different words have a lot of power in terms of how I orient in the world, what I invite into my world, and what I create. And in in the Vedic scriptures, the word for that power is matrika shakti, the power of words. Right? Things have to be words before they can be. So words for me are a lot. I mean, if not everything right now. Hmm. I love it. So, so much of the kind of feedback or what we've been working around is kind of kind of two things. One is that a lot of what we do happens in the experience that people have with each other. Right. And, and that's true. What we're learning in our online spaces where we've been working really hard to create not only strategically successful space, but like really human relational space in the kind of remote and online work we're doing now because of COVID. Um, uh, but also, obviously, it was huge in terms of the rooms we were working in with people face to face. But it becomes vastly insufficient when you're talking to someone about some major transformation work that fit, that they will feel has very high stakes to it. And then you're like, oh, yeah, but you have to really experience it to know what we're talking about, you know. And so the power of words, like, like how do we use, I mean, I think we're really in a question of like, how do we actually use words to evoke something that in some ways is felt, right? And uh, and and so um, so that's a lot of the question we're in. And then there's something for me about um, uh, whether we're developing a new language. Like, is it actually about having a consistency? Like, if the words are different and new and outside what the realm of what people are using generally, is that is it actually about consistency or? Is it about just finding the right words for the moment? And of course, it's neither either one. I mean, you you know what I mean? It's going to be a bit of both. But like, those are two kind of big questions we're in around, like how we build the language to support a work and something that is in many ways felt and experienced. And whether this is about building really strong consistency or whether it's about 
actually allowing whatever the moment is to produce the right language that best serves That's really it, interesting. You know? It makes me think of an article that I wrote a few weeks ago based on a conversation I had with an anthropologist in London. And we talked about this. He talked about the research he was doing there and how he... It was very fascinating. We were talking about... Um, oh, what's the word? Sovereignty. We were talking about sovereignty, and because I've been mm. writing about personal sovereignty, and he was studying collective sovereignty, and we got into we got into this really interesting conversation about an example. He gave an example of what he was seeing in London. So there was a group. So apparently, the Latinx community in London is so small that it's not even counted in the census. And there was a group of, mm. I guess, organizations trying to organize these communities. And so they had created these spaces for people to come together and form some sorts of campaign around, you know, whatever they wanted to work on. And when the Latinx community that was meeting, which was mostly women, decided that their campaign was going to be to be counted in the census, the organizing group said, well, that does that's not really a good campaign. You know, like no one cares about data, you know. And so what they found was that it actually was important to see themselves and mm -hmm. that same group of mm -hmm. mothers, you know, kind of grew out of the way that it, he told me how it developed was that it was the meeting was being held in this building that had a bunch of mom and kid groups, like parent groups. And so it turned out that the people who ended up going to that meeting ended up being mostly moms. And at first... Mm -hmm. It wasn't a mom's group. It was a, you know, just a group in that space. But quickly the conversation became, is it a mom's group? Because there was only one guy, which was the anthropologist. The moms decided that it was a mom's group. They claimed the space. He stuck it out and kept coming because he really wanted to study it. And he said that over time, once they claimed it as that space, it kind of created an enclosure. And so then all the moms started mm -hmm. to talk about their experience of being a mom. And they were from all over the world. And some of them were German, some of them were from African countries. And so they were just talking about the stressors and their, their hopes and their dreams as moms. And so by the end of that, they had transformed the meaning of mom. And what he found was that when they went back to the funder that had been paying for that work, the funder did not understand what was happening, did not want to keep funding it. This was mm -hmm. the group that wanted to keep working on, on mm -hmm. the census question. And what he found was that, the, mm -hmm. that in order to create understanding about an identity that one holds, one needs to create a sort of closure so that you can really go deep and reimagine that identity. But then when you come out and you've reimagined that identity, the challenge is to translate that for the people who weren't part of that process. And so we talked about that, mm -hmm. that forget what I called it in the article, but that work of translation, um, of being able to exactly. both dive deep for the depth that you need, and especially in an intersectional space society where there's so many ways that we need to dive deep, but then we're always trying to find this common ground. So that tension between that is actually, um, you know, I forget how I wrote about it, but as a challenge that actually is not easy. It's not easy to do that. And that mm -hmm. actually is one of the biggest mm -hmm. challenges of organizing for power, um, that it often does require redefining, um, you know, sort of these identities that have been put on us. And that at the same time, you need to reconnect <laughs> with a larger table um, in order to have those. So we talked about how we need to not be so um, 
so blind to that translation part, right? Like a lot of the times I feel like mm-hmm. even right now, um, I think of, you know, honestly, my, 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 my inner response to the term BIPOC, right? I'm like, I don't want to say right. BIPOC. I'm a person of color and I just want to say person of color. I get all the other issues, but I feel like sometimes we get so granular in our definitions that it all becomes hard even for people who are in the space to be able to have conversations. And I feel like there is this tension between that recognition of these differences and the ability to be translatable or visible, um, understandable, um, recognizable. Um, those are all parts of power in context. So I don't think it's easy. I don't know if we have those kinds of conversations. I think there's a lot of ideology around those conversations and it's actually not even easy to talk about it. Yeah, it's so, I mean, just so much of what you just said just is like lighting up pieces for me because it's, when you talked about translation or connection, there's a piece, and this is what I always think about when I think about power, that's, that is strategy. Like part of it is, yes, yeah. like grounding and deepening so we know what we're what we're doing and who we are to do it. But then there is also this piece around strategy that like you just have to pay attention to and at least in our work. And so the reason, you know, we formed the outside is because we felt like as we did systems change work, there was very little power analysis, right? There's just very little, like, oh, if you just kind of get people in a room and they vision and like you look at the whole system, right? There's very little. And then um, in some of the more movement-y based spaces, we felt like there wasn't much strategy to the level that you're talking about. There was a lot of like coming together, right? But not connecting out to make change. And so as you say that, I'm thinking about, it does feel a little bit like a tension or a dichotomy to go deep as well as connect. And somehow, we always feel like we have to make a choice when I think instead what you're saying and what I'm hearing is like, you, you have to actually do both. You cannot make that choice. It will not get you where yeah, you want to go. I think so. Yeah. I don't think there are a lot of spaces for and those so- kinds of conversation, which is why I've launched the edge. I think a lot of these questions are really, um, you know, really critical. And I feel like there isn't, uh, not only a space, but a sense of how to have them. I think, you know, in my work in over the past two decades, ex- especially as I've worked with movements and worked with different leaders, I am constantly challenging people to question the idea of shared strategy even, right? Um, why, you know, why don't we have a portfolio? Mm-hmm. Why do we have to agree? What do we really have to agree on? You know, this yes. the idea that we have to agree yes. on everything is really extreme and tiring. It doesn't allow yes. for the diversity that we have in our in our in our spaces. Yeah. Um, it doesn't encourage it. And I just think that there's a there's a way that we need to be both humble and sophisticated in these conversations, right? We have to be, mm-hmm. we have to care enough and be curious enough about people. And you know, in my book, I talk about difference as being the trigger to power dynamics and how we orient towards difference as being really important as a core way of entering the conversation. And I tend to be drawn to difference. And I didn't realize that about myself. I thought that I liked sameness, like I was looking for people like me. Mm. But I realized it was actually difference that I was looking for. But I, there's this assumption that we should seek sameness. And I think there is a space for that. Um, but I think being drawn towards difference is less explored, especially in leadership and in translation work. 
being aware that you're doing that kind of work. For example, I, I spoke with a funder, a black funder, and who told me she couldn't fund a piece of work that a lot of women of color wanted because her trustees didn't get that. And I said to her, well, it's your job to make sure they get that. You're a translator. Like, <laughs> what are you doing in that space mm-hmm. as a woman of color if you're not translating? Um, and so the fact that we don't think of that as a leadership skill or qualification, you know, it's no wonder we tend to see a lot of the same dynamics replicated no matter who's in those positions, right? So, yeah, we really need to be able to have these conversations and not have them not be controversial. There's something about, um, I've, got, I've got lots of questions now and like thoughts and I'm just going to try and organize them if I possibly can. And so, um, and so one is something around, um, the, uh, uh, that kind of bridging role is about power, right? But also that what we're often doing is pitching to people who hold wealth, influence, positional authority or hierarchical authority something that in in many ways will undermine the established power that they have or the way that they have got to that position of power. So in our circumstances, we're often going into an organization and saying leadership needs to be fundamentally distributed for us to be able to respond to the complexity of the circumstances we're in. There's no way that a pinnacle type leadership is going to be able to adapt effectively to the crazy insanity and rapidity of change right now. Boom. Right. And and uh, but but a distributed leadership model demands letting go of control. And many of the people who we're working with have got to that position of authority because they've been really good at getting shit under control and going in and like fixing problems for people and being the expert and having the you know. And so there's something about like what's the language that actually translates into uh, uh, positions of power why power needs to be let go of, and like, how does that begin to start shifting people's fundamental beliefs about themselves, right, and about what it means to lead in today's world? And I find like a lot of the language and a lot of what I've struggled with is that a lot of it kind of like turns into, um, uh, it becomes like, it's like suddenly we're in the world of co-creation, you know? And if I'm talking to the director general of a humanitarian organization, like the language of co-creation just does not land. Do you know what I mean? And so it's like, what's the language that's like hard enough to bridge into the leadership worlds that we're currently engaging, but kind of soft enough to point to something new or totally. do you see what I mean? Like, I feel like we're, we're constantly torn between like the emerging reality that we know is more successful in terms of results but communicating to a, in many ways, an insufficient worldview that is desperately struggling to hold on to the power that it has, and and I wow the bridging role in that. Yeah, is it's so incredible. fascinating you bring this up because you know I've been researching for a book that I want to write on hierarchy because this question keeps coming up, and there's so many interesting takes on it. You know, when you look at any issue, like when I looked at the issue of power for the first book. I came at it from 10 different fields. And when you actually really start to look at how different fields look at something, you start to get at a deeper strata of truth because you start to see similarities. So like in Mm. that first book, I saw that whether I was talking about the Vedic scriptures and and supreme power or whether I was talking about neuroendocrinology and the way power works in our bodies and our nervous system, they were all using the same five words, you know, difference. 
um, mm. choice. Um, so you start to get to this underlayer. And so when I started to start to research the, the hierarchy question, because I mean, I went to my, my nonprofit degree is an alternative model. So I'm, I've always been, mm. you know, sort of not, um, I wasn't trying to climb the ladder in the sector, right? Like there's this whole thing people expect you to do as a leader. And I've never been drawn towards that sort of hierarchical climb, but I did find in the research that hierarchy is everywhere in, in nature, but it also has, I mean, hierarchy allows us to hold more. It allows our brain to hold more information. It allows a lot more to be together, right. to create a bigger whole, right? And, but in nature, there's also this lateral space that functions underneath hierarchy, most visible in the mushroom kingdom, which kind of covers all of the world. And when you look at what that yeah. thing does, it actually fixes what doesn't work from the hierarchical system. It actually has this other function. Mm. So I kind of beginning to think, if you look at nature and biomimicry, that there's something there and it's not just kind of like throwing away hierarchy, which I'm actually not really into. But then I also, mm. I also want to yeah. distinguish between hierarchies based on power and role and hierarchies based on mastery, which are totally different. So for example, in my spiritual yeah. community, there's a guru who's realized, right? And so there is someone who is a master at something who we learn by watching and being with, right? And that, that person experiences something and can tell us what the experience might look like for us, right? So I talk about this a lot with friends of mine who uh, facilitate transformational spaces, right? Their transformation is a space, a process, it's a world. There are frameworks to understand. And so if you're going to be a master in that space, you're helping people walk through that space, right? Like, you know how to tell them when they're going through what they don't know in their expansion process, watch out, this is going to happen because that process has different words, right? And I, in, in the book, in my book, I, I, I base a lot of that on the work that's been done by Victor Turner in um, Liminal Spaces, in his study of ritual spaces and mm. finding that those things have, those spaces have a structure. He calls it an anti-structure because it's a different structure. It's the structure that's beyond before the structure that emerges. The anti-structure holds everything. There's a space of dropping mm. into this possibility and then kind of going through a thing there and then coming out at another level of structure. But that's a space that has contours and roles and, and, and kind of people and how they, and so it has rules and it has norms in the way that it usually is done in, in human society. So it's really important, I think, to recognize mastery because sometimes in our attempt to create um, or to move beyond hierarchy, we create other problems um, such that, you know, people really don't trust letting go of hierarchy um, because they're, we don't really have a sense. <laughs> I mean, a lot of this, we, we, we approach it like it's new and we don't know what's going to happen yet. Um, but I don't know if it's new. I mean, I think it's just really thinking about, you know, uh, the one more thing that comes up with this, it's connected is, uh, the value, right? So value theory is something that I've been really exploring and in Mazzucata's book, the value of everything, she talks about how the first thing to understand about a system is where the value is. Right. And so if you can mm. organize mm -hmm. your mastery and your hierarchy and whatever structure you have around the value creation, then you start to really get around. And even if you're using the same structures, which are just tools, they're just organized for different purposes. Mm -hmm. So. Mm -hmm. 
I think this is really, I mean, I just, I feel like I want to talk to you forever and talk about how our work aligns with what you're saying. Like we often say like hierarchy yeah. is not the enemy. There are natural hierarchies. We have to right. figure out how to use it and what, like, what's the right role and, 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 and how do we share power even in hierarchy and all of those different things. So I feel like, but I actually want to ask you, and I hope this doesn't take us too far off, but you've just said so many interesting little nuggets. Um, and I'm curious, Cindy, I mean, you talk, you've talked about Vedic scripture, you've talked about value theory. When I wrote about this, I'm here. I'm curious how you got to where you are. You know, so many of our listeners kind of like, we know that the personal journey, like how, how did you come to be writing about power and hierarchy at this, at this point in the world, in your life? So I just yeah. would love to hear a little bit about how well, you got here. It's really interesting because I feel that's why I came. Um, since, I, since I was a kid, mm. I always knew I would write about power. I was um, this little black uh. Puerto Rican girl in the hood um, reading theory. And I don't ask me how mm. or why, but it must have been meant for me to be. I mean, I think I started out, I remember when I was working at an after school, uh, I had a job after school at the Mass Society of CPAs, and I had a black boss, Cheryl. And I remember I, I read everything at the time. I, I grew up really working class. So the only books I had were when I went with my mom to the Goodwill store in the basement, there was an area in the back where all the books were 25 cents and they all had the covers torn off because they were like bootleg, I guess. I had no, I used to just look at these books and think, who would tear the covers <laughs> off of these books? But I could always get four because that was only a dollar. So I like this whole stack of book in my, in my room with covers from everything from like concepts of beauty to like Edgar Allan Poe. I just read everything. And I went to the library and I got books mm. and all that. And so I remember when I started working at this place and, I, and Cheryl noticed that I like to read a lot. And I, she said, I noticed you like to read a lot. I said, yes, I love reading. And she said, well, you should read literature. And I was like, literature, what is that? And she said, really good books. And she started naming all these authors like Alice Walker, Tony Merchant. So then I discovered all of those. And like for like years, I, I would start from the first and read all their books, you know. And then I found Bell Hooks. And so then it went to like theory and, and co. And I don't know. I just, I'm attracted to things that are different that I don't know. And, and reading has always been a big part of my life. I, the TV was always on. I was never watching TV. I was always reading. My mom thought I was the weirdest kid. I just love to read. I felt like it was a way to hang out with these really cool people. And my mind mm -hmm. just became, I, I was very imaginative. I think I could go into these worlds and I just traveled mm. in my mind. And, mm. you know, I remember when I was about 25, I had a dream that I was reading this book and it was such a good book. And I was like, oh my God, this is such a good book. Like, and I looked at the table of contents. I was like, oh my God, this is such an amazing table. Who's the author? And it said my name. And then I was like, that's when I had a hint <gasps> that I came here to write. Yeah. What? And then I remember listening to NPR Whoa. a few years later and someone saying, oh, you wrote a book after 40. You know, most people don't write their, most, most authors write their first book in their 20s, not their 40s. And this person was explaining why they wrote their book after their 40s. No, I wasn't in my 40s. But for some reason, that um, interview captivated me and it had like this energy, like, and I knew I will write my book after I'm 40. I, so I've always had this thing where I feel like my path is somewhat clear. And when something is for me, it mm. resonates. It has like this glow in this, even if it's like totally not something that anyone in my position in society should think of doing. So like when I decided to stop and write a book on theory, it wasn't like, I knew people that were doing that or that I knew what I was going to do with this book once it was finished. I just knew I had to do it. Um, and so it's always been about this leap of faith um, and kind of mm. valuing my thinking.
When, when I first heard you talk and I wrote down the word thirst, because they're just this sense of like, you know, and then like, and then I wrote down this other, these other two words here, which was kind of like glow and inner compass, that actually it's not like a thirst. It's actually like there's something inside you that's like pulling you towards these pieces of literature and the synchronicity of these moments and the, you know, and I just have this like, like how do you stay tuned uh, to that? Is mm. it like so loud inside yourself that you just can't ignore it? Like, is it, do you know what I mean? Is it like a constant function? I can feel like the horns going off the whole time or is it like, is it actually a practice of still, I just, I'm super intrigued how you stay so that's a great that question. So you know, it's life. interesting, but I'm reading this book called Sacred Contract, and it's about the contracts we make when we incarnate. And one of the things that she says about people who tend to create something new or something big is that they tend, there's a point at which they have to go against the tribe. They always kind of have to break from mm. what is known to them in order to make their contribution and that it's not easy to do that. And I think that part of it is that, um, that I, I don't know. I, I think I was born kind of, I want to say it's funny because I interviewed Sheila E the other day and I asked her about this because she writes in her biography about having what she calls this, um, extreme confidence. I forget what she calls it, but I remember as a kid, I used to read all these fashion magazines and I remember a lot of them had articles about low self-esteem. And I remember as a kid thinking, mm. well, why would anybody do that? You know? And then I, I mean, I just felt like mm. I somehow did not have that. I came knowing and trusting myself. Um, and then I, I don't know. I think I have a spiritual practice. So I, you know, I definitely meditate and tap in a lot, but I think because I'm very inward focused, even though I'm kind of an extrovert, mm-hmm. I spend a lot of time inside myself. I feel like there's so many worlds and there's so much going on internally. Um, but I'm always like there, like, you know, and so like, yeah, I feel like there's a lot of aliveness in, inside me. Um, and I can spend mm-hmm. a lot of time by myself, just kind of like, you know, but I love going out and connecting with people and seeing the connections. I mean, a lot of it's both, right? So it's both having this this sense, you know, like I was saying, to, I was saying the other day, you know, how for a while I've been saying, you know, what I want, and I think this is what it is. I spend a lot of time imagining what I want. Ever since I was a kid, I was always saying, "This is what I mm. want," right? And it was like as much as possible unimpeded by whatever people thought I should want, right? So I remember saying years ago, I just want to write a book. I want to leave the sector in a way. I want to write a book. I just want to work on projects globally that advance social change. That I can have like a special contribution that I'm making. I just, that's just what I want to do. And I said yesterday, I was talking to my family at the dinner table. I said, I'm actually doing exactly what I said I wanted to do. And I noticed that that has been my trajectory. I have always Mm. ended up doing exactly what I want to do, but it takes knowing what I want to do in some sense for years before and being patient and doing the hard work of getting there. And and a lot of it, I guess at this point in my life, um, I've gained a lot of faith in my sense of doing that and the Mm. universe support of me in doing that because I've never not, I've never, every time I've taken a leap, I've landed. 
And so as you do that more and more, it builds and your sense of power becomes unstoppable to the point that when you see all these folks externally, you know, like protest about, like you get that, but you also sense that there's so much power that you actually have. And so there's this discrepancy sometimes between the power that you're building personally to moving to the world and the conversations around you about power. I'm always trying to bring that into the spaces that I'm in. So for example, and a lot of, a lot of times now when I talk to people and I talk to a lot of folks, it's awesome. They call and we have these great conversations about what they're doing. And I notice that in almost every conversation, people are really depleted and I can get really Mm. depleted too sometimes. And so this weekend I I take time to go deep and to, to reconnect um, with myself and with the earth and with the energies that want to emerge right now. And what I got this weekend when I did that was because I've been getting a lot of requests for work um, around power and, and the Edge Institute is growing quickly. But what I got as a sense from the earth, which is full of abundance and which doesn't get overwhelmed, is that I have to learn on, I have to focus on the pleasure of that abundance and not on the overwhelm of it. So I checked into a meeting this week and I said that, I said, yeah, I'm really tapping into the pleasure of all the abundance and work that is in my, in my, in, in, in my space right now. And people, you know, so again, it's always words and it's always being in tune and, and, and kind of like, for me, it comes down to being really committed to freedom. I'm really mm. committed to freedom. It depends on no one else but me. <laughs> And I'm just, I'm really, I would say hard on myself, but I just really push myself to, to be as free as I want to be. And that usually is more about me than about anybody else. Um, Cindy, I feel like I want to talk with you forever because I <laughs> yeah, feel like, me too. I mean, I feel, I've just, I like I, it's, it's like, we're getting close to our time and I'm like, what? <laughs> No, this is unacceptable. I have lots more questions here. This is this is that is there's got to, there might have to be a part two or something, maybe yeah. even a three and four. This might be an ongoing dialogue. Like I feel like we haven't even right, choose. I mean, that like, is, this is ridiculous. That is exactly how I'm feeling. I wrote down so many things. Yeah. I'm like, okay, Tuesday, calm down. Me you too. Can't ask about all these things. Um, no. but I do want to no. ask you before you go. Well, I want. Mm. I have to make an observation. Like I just like feel like I need to say. Like I just even heard you use different language when you talked about your freedom. Like because what I was thinking is you feel so clear in your internal compass that I think yeah. that if if I'm listening right, I'm like, oh, okay, that's something I can take away is around clarity around my internal compass. But I also think there is an outward thing that's happening that I heard it from when you're talking about reading all these books as a kid. You don't feel afraid of ideas. Yeah. But do you know what I mean? Like, it just feels like that. See, like you just kind of lit up. Right. And I was like, what is that? (laughs) That was just classic. I wish everybody watching the podcast could have seen the video there because that was beautiful. But I actually think that's so, it's so unique. Right. So many of us, when yeah. ideas come in, we brace against them. Why is that wrong? Why will that not work? What is it? You know, like there's like a bracing and an against just of ideas. And I feel you like just like letting ideas in. So I just needed to make that observation because it felt like I just saw it in you so clearly. And it feels really key to making the world we want to like we if we're afraid of ideas, we're going to be afraid of actions. We're going to be afraid of each other. We're going yeah, to be, afraid, you know what I mean? Like, they're candy, like but, yum, you know? <laughs> <laughs> 
But I wanted to give you a chance to tell us about the Edge Institute, because we've mentioned it a couple times, and I know it's like taking some of your time and effort now, and I just would love to hear about that before Yeah, so that grew out of the work that I've been doing at the nonprofit quarterly and, and the Power Manual, too. And, you know, it's over and over again, when we engage people of color in particular in the sector, no matter what level of leadership they were in, people really wanted a different space outside of their organization to come and to think and to be with other leaders and to explore and create the new forms that they want or suspect other people want, right? And so there are definitely people who are already, and I use the word forms, this is a space for creating the new forms. And forms is everything from subjectivity to organizational form to interactional frameworks. So anything that's a form, that's you know what this is a space for. And it's a larger thing than a project in a nonprofit world that actually is in any field is in, mm. in, in a lot of it is cultural language. So what are the forms that need to be created right now? And it's been amazing because people demanded that space, a, a, a liberatory design space for new forums where they could talk to people mm. um, like themselves. Uh, you know, people were saying that it's really hard to innovate in their organizations, not only because it's not their job to innovate for the most part, um, but because the people that they need to talk to aren't necessarily colleagues, right? They need to actually talk to wide and far, you know? And so that's been fascinating because a lot of that actually has been driven by funders. A lot of funders of color want that space. They kind of feel that mm-hmm. there's more that they should be doing. Um, and they want to figure out how to explore building that. How would they even fund differently? Like just a space for innovation. And so a lot of that is just a response to the field, but it also came to a head for me when I read Tony Fry's book, Design as Politics. And he talks about the need to create new forms for the future that are liberatory and sustaining of the, of the, of the universe, of, of Earth. And that in order to do that, what is needed is the, the resourcing of people at the edge, right? We tend to design for the middle. And the middle always gets you back to like incremental where we are and designing around challenges. But the edge is the space for the few people, maybe less than five or 1%. And he's like, you don't really need a lot of people. You just need a few people that are focused on these other trajectories of liberation and exploring those forms. And those folks will feed the forms back to the people who want them. And so I've seen that in my work. I've seen a lot of people who want to create forms. And I see a lot of people who actually call me saying, is there a model for non-hierarchical organization? Is there a model for working with intergenerational conflict in the Black community? Is there a model for like, what what else can I say to people when I'm trying to get them to let go of something? What is there that I can offer them? And so I think that he's right. And I, I myself don't think that we ever really designed or that the sector supports edge leadership which is what I started to call it. Mm. So it's a space for that. And it's going really, really fast. Um, We are launching our online two-way interactive website in October with a campaign with all these leaders that we've convened to talk about the new infrastructure that we need. And it's just going to be amazing. And it's really a beautiful space because aesthetics and culture is a big part of that work. So there's lots more I can say, but look out Mm. for it. It's edgeleadership.org. And it'll be announced at MPQ and through my own personal social media. Okay. Well, so, when, and- when the website comes, send it to us and we'll oh, push great. it out through our socials. And, and I that would love would be to invite awesome. you on. So yeah, please, because please, it's a please. space for people to have these conversations yeah. as practitioners. It allows closed spaces and then you can curate and let it kind of push it back into the community. So we've been designing this amazing website 
using this new technology that is really blowing my mind. But I said, there must be something out there where you can meet online and actually have it be interactive and still be curated. And lo and behold, there was. So I'm really excited. Oh, well, I can't wait to, I can't wait to see it. So just to be clear, so people can get you edgeinstitute.org, they can get you a nonprofit core edgeleadership.org. Great. Edgeleadership.org. They can get you at the nonprofit quarterly. That's where they could see these articles that you've referenced and pieces. They can get the manual. They could read the book and you have a, you have a social media presence. So is that at Cindy Suarez? Suarez, How would they find you? I usually pull my articles and keep everything on that website as well with my book and my writing. So different ways to get me, but yeah, I'm on Twitter at Cindy Suarez and on Instagram and LinkedIn. Fantastic. Well, Cindy, as we come to the end of the pod, we always ask our guests to either to bring a song or a poem. And rumor is it you have a song for us. The song is from one of my closest friends' album that's coming out soon. And this one is called Mountains. And the group is called The Vision. And it is a beautiful song about, like many of the songs on this album, which is an amazing album. I think it's masterful. But this song is about mm. what it feels like, to me at least, it's about what it feels like to be alive now. And he talks about, you know, it, it, so some of the lyrics say, if the darkness falls apart and I am down on my knees, the world keeps spinning around because I still believe. And it's about the work that it t- takes right now in this really hard time to feed your soul and to actually believe and to create the change that we want. And even though it may feel like moving mountains, um, you know, our heart can't let go of this work that we know needs to happen. So I just think it's a beautiful song. Um, the words, the lyrics, the music. I hope you check it out. Cindy, could you read that section again, but like sure. slowly? Just to just to give it, that would be say, awesome. Down to my bones, now broken by the sticks and stones. I must feed my soul. Nothing's going to let me go. And it goes on to talk about if the darkness falls apart and I am down on my knees, the world will keep spinning around because I still believe. And it keeps going, I still believe, believing. And at the end it says, moving mountains in the middle of the night. That's the, the core of the song. It's all I need, all I need. Jesus shares just, just, share from my side. Anyway, I don't know if these lyrics are translated correctly, but it's about really um, feeling like you're moving mountains in the middle of the night and actually doing it. You know, it's like mm. big work, but we're actually doing Fabulous. it because we actually believe. So it's both kind of speaks to the bigness of the work at hand, but also the force of the song is such that you know you can do it. Mm. Yeah. Nice. Beautiful. Yeah. Thank you very much, folks, who've been listening. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us, Cindy. Just brilliant. And like we both said, it feels like the beginning of a conversation. Folks, you can go to our website or whatever app you listen to your podcast on. You can see the show notes there, many of the resources that Cindy has referenced, and certainly the music will be available there. And you can find all of our podcasts at findtheoutside.com backslash podcast. Did you mention our Spotify playlist of all the songs that are mentioned? Did you already say That's that? True. Yep. So we have. a Spotify, it's, look, you have to search the out, find the outside on Spotify. You'll find the playlist, every song that's been mentioned over this uh, three years of podcasting, as well as some that Tim just likes will be on yes. that list. 
<laughs> also, just to say, uh, Mark Coffin from Sound Good Studio produces the podcast, and our theme music is from Gary Blakemore. Take care, folks. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.